They got into the 21st floor. They asked for reception for me. So there I go. I see the two agents. And uh, they say, we want to talk with you. It's like, uh, I'm going to get deported, right? I mean, for the first thing that happens, I'm just going to get deported. I don't know what I did. I don't know what triggered this. Just like, if you have any expectations of leaving the country in the next six months, cancel all your plans. You're grounded. You cannot leave the U.S. because if you leave the U.S., you might not be able to go back. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Leonardo and his family had built their whole lives around the success of this company. And yet with just one visit from Homeland Security, it was on the brink of vanishing into thin air. He'd moved to an entirely new country looking for opportunity and faced obstacle after obstacle, all because he was an alien. With only a couple of weeks before their green card expired, Leonardo and his family were desperate for any help they could get. Today, Leonardo Shapiro is both the CEO and founder of not one, but three companies, including Altapay, AirBank, and Not Alien. He's redefined what being an immigrant means to thousands of entrepreneurs like him, proving that immigrants are human, not alien. But before we dive into this tumultuous journey, let's rewind to the beginning to a story that every immigrant family knows all too well. I come from a family of immigrants. Uh, my grandfather and my grandmother, from both sides, they were European. And in their times, they, they fled Europe uh, before the Second World War. And uh, they wanted to come to the US, but they didn't let them in. So they ended up in Mexico uh, with no knowledge of the language and so forth. So, so I, I grew up all around with this concept of family. Family was incredibly important for, for my, 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 my grandfather and my grandmother. And they always taught us that the most important thing you have is your family. And the most important thing you can do is, you know, create that little ties. My grandfather used to call me hoty hands because in Spanish sounds better, like manitas calientes, sounds like, you know, hotty hands, because I used to touch everything and I was always like very curious about things. I had this passion for roller coasters. So I used to go a lot to roller coasters and it was really interesting because every time they, they stopped them because I was like leaning to the side or leaning from there, trying to understand how, how things work. I have ADHD for sure. Uh, they didn't exist. I think the diagnosis for that didn't exist when it started when I was young, but I've always been like incredibly, you know, curious and then just like, no, I cannot stay put. I always need to be moving. 
where did your curiosity start to take you? So like in those early days, did you find yourself like going towards like computers, like engineering? I mean, obviously roller coasters is a lot of engineering in that, but like, did you find yourself exploring specific disciplines when you were a kid as you, as you like were developing that curiosity? Yeah. You know, every time there was like a birthday or something and somebody asked me for what I wanted for a present. So I asked for like a chemistry game or something. So we used to, we used to do a lot of, you know, experiments with all those things. One of my first, (laughs) this is, this is kind of funny to say it, but one of my, my first projects that I remember is kind of my best friend and, and I, from that time, we wanted to build a spaceship. So, so we thought it was kind of pretty interesting to build and, uh, a spaceship that was going to be propelled by Alka-Seltzer, right? So we started buying a lot of Alka-Seltzers. And at some point, we got like 100 boxes of Alka-Seltzers because we were supposed to be using that as a way of propelling our ship. The name of the ship was going to be Alpha 12. I don't know where that name came from. And we actually did schematics and designs and all those things. And of course, we didn't build a spaceship. And, uh, and But we did create a flood in, in my mom's house when we were like trying to use our propellant. Uh, a couple of times, you know, we we blew a few of the fuses in the house because we were just like connecting things in the wrong places. But yeah, always always interested in, in, in building things. Did you feel different? Like like I guess in terms of different in a way that made you feel like otherized or maybe maybe a little isolated, or did you feel like you had enough friends around you who were also interested in the same stuff where maybe there wasn't that feeling? I went to a Montessori school. Uh, and uh, that definitely helped because I was being able to be really active. I was also a very kind person. I'm very, maybe it's because of my, you know, my, my neurodiversity, if you want it somehow, but I'm normally, I used to be really, really naive. So I, I was kind of the perfect candidate to be the bullied kid in school. But but I was never bullied, right? I mean, maybe once or twice. I I was just like, you know, really thin and, you know, really fragile with my big, thick glasses. But yeah, I think I always had like my my tribe of of kids who who were interested in kind of the same things. And again, uh, maybe maybe it's because the environment I was placed into. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, we used to count seconds, and uh, the, both of us would stand in front of the of a clock and, and try to see how many seconds were there. And if you actually have to say one mm or one thing in order to actually count the seconds. So, yeah, very, very, very interesting in mathematics. Very interesting in in a bunch of all those things when I was really, really young. When you chose to do computer science, a lot of the people that got into like computer science, especially like you know maybe a few decades ago were getting into it because of all the computer games that were coming out. And so there was this like opportunity to like, do you want to go towards gaming, creating games like with the programming that you're working or do you want to go towards like the more traditional engineering, like so like just like software and um, I don't know, like like any like stuff for uh, for rockets or defense or whatever it may be. Gaming was never a thing for me. I mean, I think I liked it. And uh, I think the the graphics back then were very simple uh, so it was like you're going to this three-dimensional maze and going right and left and all those things so never was like highly you know highly enticing or attractive visually at least to me uh, and 
a lot of my friends then started getting really into these kind of uh, you know violence games. Uh, I mean, we didn't have Call of Duty, but they were like similar things. And uh, I was never into that when when I was when I I was in college. I think my mind was like, I want to build a compiler, or I want to build something that is you know advanced, or I want to build. I was really, I mean, neural networks and genetic algorithms were starting to be a thing back then. And I was kind of really curious to try to understand what they were. And never really got deep into all those things, but uh, but I did build like a compiler and did build like an interpreter. And so that was that was that was fun stuff. Wow. So you wanted you wanted to build things that like could be like like useful to others too. Like or or did you want to build things that would like push the envelope of of what could be understood and explored? Neither. I think I just wanted to understand how things work, right? So, so for me, I, I remember for me, it was like really interesting to see that when you're typing in, in kind of an IDI for, 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 develop, for software development, certain words were like being, you know, change call, changing color, getting larger, like reserved words that, I mean, what the, the, the way that we develop software right now, it's, you know, it's really predictive. But, but then it was like, if you're writing something like, if you do these, then kind of then was kind of turning into another word. So I was like, incredibly curious as how do they do that? Right? I mean, I remember I went with my teacher and I was like, Hey, I need to understand how this works. And she gave me like some, you know, ideas of where to look and where to start and how to bring how to build this this type of software. So so I think I was I was programming to really see if how things work right how more more than the for actually building things that were useful it was just like to truly understand what was behind this so as you get towards the end of college you're probably looking for not only how does this work but like how can i apply this to get a job um so what were you looking towards in terms of getting your first job or or creating something of your own I think it's an interesting question, uh, and it, there's a, more than a question. I think it's an it's an interesting story, though. So, uh, so I met in college, who's my wife right now for almost twenty five years, and we were one of those uh, stories where our families were not really happy that we were together. Why weren't they happy? Uh, well, you know, I I grew up Jewish, uh, and uh, and she was not, and she was like from a prominent family from a very small town in Mexico, and I was not from there. So, kind of our families had this idea. Okay, this because for me it was like, okay, this guy's gonna marry some Jewish girl somewhere, and she she was like, well, she's gonna marry somebody from Veracruz, which is her hometown from another prominent family. And, and suddenly these two kids get together in, in Mexico, in Monterrey, Mexico, which where we studied. And so we didn't have a lot of support from our parents. And it was like, you know, uh, they, they were, we were kind of privileged enough that they helped us with tuition and all those things. But when we finished college, they said like, okay, you're on your own, right? That was like the, the wave they were trying to pressure us to go back. Wow. So they were like, we want this relate. Both sides are like, we want this relationship to fail. So, how so see how you guys do on your own. And then when it fails, you'll come crawling back to either sides of where you came from. Exactly. That was that, that, that's exactly the definition of how that went. Uh, and so, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think as a, as a, as a father, I think you do as a mother, as a, as a parent, I guess, I think you do what you think it's best. Uh, so no, no judgment there. Uh, but yeah, we, we stayed there. And the first thing that we were actually able to get was kind of these kind of a, 
assistantship uh, with a professor uh, and we would get, you know, a little bit of money there, which was not much, but it was good for us to be able to, to keep paying rent. And uh, we would get a, and we'd get also kind of a, our master's degree as part of this deal with the university. So, so we both started doing that. And uh, uh, not a few months later, she was working for IBM. And uh, I was working with, uh, uh, not in the university, but I was working with, with uh, in, in the informatics department, which was the you know, the service area of there. And uh, so my my boss sends me to Canada to do some training. And when I come back, he tells me, well, I have good news and bad news for you. It's like, okay, it was like two months training. And it was like, well, the bad news is, you know, your position's being closed. So all the two months that you did in Canada, they're worthless, right? And it was like, but the good news is like, I can offer you another job if you want it. I can make you the technological assistant of the president of the university. And it was like, okay, what the hell is that? And he was like, well, I mean, his VCR is blinking, go and fix it, right? If the microwave oven is not programmed the, the, the correct way, go and fix it, right? If he needs, and of course he was like, I mean, back then the, the, uh, the university had like 30 campuses around Mexico and, uh, we didn't have Wi-Fi and we didn't have all the things that we have right now. So he was traveling a lot and I needed to travel before and make sure that he had a station to use his email and all those things. Fast forward this. One day I was in his house and he was doing something in the computer and he was like really frustrated. And I was just like, you know, minding my business. But I saw that he was trying to do something. And at some point I lost it. Right? And I came to him, I pushed him out, and I say, you're doing this wrong, doctor. This is the way to do it. And I went and I started pounding in his keyboard. And a few seconds later, I was like, oh, shoot, I'm so fired, right? It's like, I just screwed this up. And I remember this was, this guy had like these really big blue eyes. And he just like kind of looked at me like that. And he said, you know something, Leonardo? This is the first time in many years that somebody tells me that I'm doing something wrong. It's like, I really like your style. I want you tomorrow to go and speak with the vice president of technology for whatever, right? So I was like, so I'm not fired. He's like, no, 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 yeah, it's good. Go and speak with this so guy. So by pushing this guy out of the way, you got a promotion. Exactly, by pushing this guy out of the way and telling him he was doing something wrong and got a promotion. Then, you know, it was great. Uh, the, the, the university started this very aggressive uh, process of redesigning the teacher learning systems by using technology. And back then I had like a budget of like $50 million and I was like traveling all around the world and teaching what Mexico was doing. And we were one of the largest installations of uh, of certain software like Lotus Notes. And so it was, I, I addressed the IBM Academy of Technology. So I was like 25 years old and I was, you know, or 24 years old. And I was like, you know, the world is, 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 is mine and I, and I can do all this. And what year are we in right now? 1995, 1996. The internet was starting, right? So you actually start go, go places and you would actually see these billboards with www.something.com. And people are, what is that? It's like, oh, that's the internet, right? The internet's going to do all these things. So one day, this, this friend 
came and said, have you ever heard of a dot-com business? And it was like, you know, like, like those things that you see in the billboards, right? It was like, oh, you know, dot-com business is, you know, you do a PowerPoint presentation and you you get rich, right? It's like- <laughs> People just give you money. Yeah, people just give you money, right? It's just like, you you know, remember this guy, remember that guy, and all those, you know, they, they did that and they got acquired in, you know, in like a, like a month, somebody gave them like a million dollars for whatever they were building. So do you want to build a dot-com business? And it was like, yeah, well, maybe, right? So I- I came home and I said, well, maybe, maybe, whatever, you know, and it's really funny though, because my, my dad had this huge poster in his office that said that thing that a ship on harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Right. So I was like, I saw that in my mind and it's like, well, maybe, maybe, Right, maybe I'm, I'm I'm a ship, and right now I'm safe. Right, you're built for the open ocean. I'm built for the <laughs> storm. Well, I built for the open ocean. Nobody told me that I was going to be built for the storm, though. But that, that came later. So we just got together with with some friends, and we started building our idea of making dinner reservations and ordering online food should work on the internet. And it was a pretty interesting idea. Uh, where we would actually give you a map of the restaurant and you can choose your table. And can you tell me what it was like to like build that team and come up with that idea? I think I was looking what my friends were doing and somebody was doing something for finance and somebody was doing something for kind of entertainment. And I, I love eating. It was, it was more kind of, a, I mean, I think I approached this as a game. So it was like, Last time I wanted to make dinner reservations or something, I spent like 20 minutes on the phone with somebody uh, and it was like, well, maybe we can do something about, you know, ordering, you know, like making dinner reservations and ordering food online. So I had a, had a good friend who used to work for me in the university uh, and he was a really good software developer and he was like, hey, why don't we just get together and build this, right? And we're like, ah, sure, let's just do it. And it was at the beginning started as our kind of, of course, after work projects. We used to get together every day from like 6 p.m. to like 1 a.m. kind of building this. And then we started, you know, putting things in the vacuum. We were not even showing these to users. We were just like, how, how do you imagine this would work for us? And, and we had this idea that you can have like a map of, 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 of the restaurant and you can see the tables and you can go and choose your table. And, uh, and then we started, and was it more. just you and that friend at this point or, or were there more people on the team? It was just me and my friend. Uh, so with the two of us coding and, and, and doing this, uh, and at some point this started kind of getting, uh, a little bit more serious. And we brought in a third software developer who was helping us. Why did it get more serious? Because we, we thought it was getting more serious. I mean, we thought it was like, oh, we're making something and we're talking to people about this. And like, oh, this could be a good idea. Or, but again, you know, the biggest, biggest mistake there was not showing this to any restaurateur at the beginning because we never did, right? Because it's like, of course they're going to like it, right? I mean, this is perfect, right? This is, this is, this is the future, right? This is, this is, this is how it's just going to work. I remember we did it. I was in Mexico City for the summer and uh, there's this very famous Argentinian restaurant owner in Mexico City. Has like very nice restaurant. So I went and I 
kind of you know network myself in into having a conversation with a guy i had my 15 minutes with him i'm gonna start showing the thing and you know the map of the restaurant here yeah yeah and you're super excited because you're like this is this guy's gonna love it exactly this is i mean this and i kind of remember this guy gave me this really weird looks and he stopped me at the beginning at the middle of my of my expression and he was like he was like okay well, in my restaurant, if I like you, I choose which table I give you. If I don't like you, I put you near the restaurant, right? And if I really don't really like you, I just don't give you a table. So do you think I'm going to let somebody do that for me? You think your people are going to choose you? He's like, get out of my office. So there I go. Like, <laughs> you know, dream shattered. Right? He kicked you out? Well, he kicked he, you out. He didn't kick me out, like kick me out, but he was like, okay, I think we're done. Thank you. So he, he, he kicked me out. And how, how long had you been working on that? Maybe like six months or something. So you had been working on it for six months and you had not talked to a restaurant owner until this point. And the first guy, the most like, like, like probably one of the, 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 the most respected restaurateurs in Mexico City just crapped all over your idea. Exactly. Oh, that, that must have been soul crushing. It was, it was soul crushing. And, and uh, so I kind of went, got together back with, with the team and it was like, guys, sorry, <laughs> I think this is not gonna, I think this is not gonna work. And, and it was like, but why? And can, we couldn't understand what was happening. Somebody said, let's pivot, right? Let's pivot into something else. And, and they're like, really, do we have the energy to do that? And it was like, yeah, yeah, let, let, let's, let's just try to do that. By then, I think we, I omit this, but I think we had raised a little bit of money you know, maybe like six months of runway or something. You're still working part-time, right? At this point? I'm still working part-time, hoping to leave. And, and by the way, my first son was coming during this period. And uh, so it was like, okay, a little more pressure because- you're, you're Like a baby was on the way. Yeah, a baby was on the way. And it was like, okay, we need to figure this out. Well, cause like when people start, you know, thinking about having kids or are surprised that they're going to have a kid, it's like, all right, time to get a real job or I got to freaking make this work in the next like, nine months. Were you feeling anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, the pressure just immediately it just became really real. So what do you do? You raise money, right? We started raising money and we were getting good traction. And, you know, some people were going to give us that. And this sounds like a soap opera, but, but I promise you it's true. So we were... About to close a million dollars. A million dollars. A million dollars. I can't remember. And this, this is what? What? This is 2000? This is 2000. Yeah. 1999, between 1999 and 2000, or maybe early 2000s. How did you get to the point where you were about to close that? So, I mean, networking and, uh, and talking to people that we were going to change the world and doing all those things. And, and again, it was, it was a lot of hype, right? I mean, there was, I think, back then something of like the first Tuesday. So this is kind of a guild that people used to meet every Tuesday and people had like tagged, like, I'm an investor, I'm an entrepreneur. And so again, it was, it was, it was a little bit of hype of, 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 of this happening in Mexico. By then we moved to Mexico City. And this is like 1999, 2000. This is at the height of the dot-com boom too. So we were going to close a million dollars. We were supposed to, we met with an investor on Tuesday and we we're supposed to get, be getting the, the check on Friday. 
And in Thursday, it's when the Nasdaq crashed. No way. So our investor called us and said, like, dude, forget about it, right? No check, no nothing. I lost all my money. I don't want to have anything to do related to this thing. So if you had done this a week before, you would have had a million dollars in the bank. Exactly. Brutal. But we persevered. We ended up finding another investor who I think gave us $250,000 for like 30% of the company. But hey, we needed the money. And we started thinking on, okay, so we build this thing that we allow everybody to create this kind of a storefront for restaurants. What about if we generalize it and we just make it for any type of shop? So but we created kind of a very early version of Shopify. This is the times when you would actually buy software on a box, right? In a CD. So we were selling our software in Office Max and in Costco. And it was called the Store Kit, right? In Spanish, Tienda Kit. In English, it would be Store Kit. So you would go, you would buy the Store Kit, and you would install it on your computer. You put the CD-ROM, and, and you start in a, this kind of a onboarding wizard. And at the end of that, you had like a storefront, and you can sell on the internet so that was going okay we were making a little bit of money from selling the software how much like revenue were you generating at that point i don't even know i don't think we were generating a lot but we were selling our things and people were liking it and and it was interesting because office max and costco they would buy it from us and they would resell it so this was like this was kind of a retail play so we used to sell like you know manufacture like 100,000 boxes with this software and we sold them and 90 days later we would get paid. So it was, it was like a business. It started to be a business. The people started using it. They started creating some of their storefronts and we started, you know, getting some kind of weird calls from our customers. Uh, I, I totally recall the, the call that I took with this guy who, who said like, Hey, you know, it's uh, it's great that you're giving me this software where I can sell it on the internet. But what I really want to do is I want to accept credit cards on my store. Call Citibank, call HSBC, call, I don't know, I mean, there's like gazillion banks in Mexico who offer that service. And and he was like, I can't. It's like, why not? Right? It's like, I don't qualify. It's like, what do you mean you don't qualify? Yeah, it's like, you know, there's like a minimum invoicing that I need to do. And, and there's like a minimum number of transactions. I need to give a bail bond. And, and it was like, shit. <laughs> so we went like crazy and we sourced some strange devices that we were getting in Korea. That it was like a printer with a max stripe reader that used to have like this kind of serial connection. And we repurposed our software to create kind of a point of sale device that you can use your computer to. So the same Tienda kit, the same CD-ROM, you would put it in your computer. Then you would connect your terminal, I guess you can call it, to your computer. And now you will actually be able to accept credit cards online. And so this was like a like an early version of Square. This is a very early version of Square. We didn't have iPhones. There were no iPhones. I mean, back, back then, the thing was Blackberries, right? Uh, but we were using the merchant's computers and the internet. And we came with the, this and we went with Banco Santander, which is a really, a really large uh, Spanish bank that used to operate in Mexico. 
and uh, we closed the strategic alliance with them. And then we started deploying all of our terminals in Mexico. And then we did the same thing with HSBC. And then we did the same thing with American Express. And then we did the same thing with Citi. How many people are working with you at this point? I think we're like 60. So how did it go from three people to 60? Well, I mean, a lot of orders, a lot of people who wanted our software. And we, have a, we had our own call center, right? So we had people answering the phone and placing, you know, doing customer support and all those things. And uh, yeah, seven, seven years later, uh, just fast forwarding all this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're seven years into this business. Where is it at this point? And how are you feeling about like yourself? Like, do you feel like you've created something that has given stability to your family? Like, are, are you still in like scrappy startup mode or do you feel like comfortable? Like, how, how are you feeling at that point? We, we were definitely in a better position than we were before, but we're still not completely stable. It's a, it's a, it's a volume business. And every time somebody swipes a card, we make like one cent. And by then we had a bunch of terminals, maybe we had like 30 or 40,000 terminals deployed in Mexico. And we were processing a lot of transactions. We were processing about 4% of the Mexican transactional market. That's insane. 4%. Yeah. 4% of all the transactions. Wow. Yeah. I remember one Christmas, we processed like $240 million in one day, right? It was just like, yeah, it was just like insane, right? I mean, this was huge. This is like world changing. I mean, you know, you're already changing like stuff at a national level. And then you get this call. What's this call? The call is from who was back then the executive vice president of the company who used to sell all the terminals in Mexico. What's the company? It's called Verifone. Verifone. How big is Verifone? I don't know how big is it right now, but back then it was huge. And I got this call from this guy and he tells me to meet him in a hotel. And we get together in the hotel. And with a very rude tone of voice, he tells me, because of you, I didn't make my quota. And I was like, so sorry, <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. And, you know, in, in Spanish, we have very, uh, uh, an expression that is, uh, when, when you say that something is cheap and, and not of good quality, you would say, how much is your chewing gum worth? Right? Uh, so he tells me, how, is, how much is your chewing gum worth? Right? And it was like, basically the chewing gum being your company the company and i tell them sorry we we don't sell chewing gum and uh and now we're really good friends and i think a couple of weeks later i got another call from them which is like hey sorry you know i was a lot of under a lot of pressure i didn't want to be rude and why don't we meet again and he was like can you come to miami because he was based in miami so i yeah i just got into a plane and uh, we we met. And what was the what was the conversation in Miami like? 
he was like, you know, our CEO really likes what you guys are doing. And we're thinking on uh, creating a division of managed services in the company. And uh, I think you guys can be a good addition to what we're doing. And uh, this is the time when, you know, the, the all the credit cards starting to use cheap cards. Uh, and you needed a different infrastructure for the terminals because they're Terminals didn't have cheap cards, cheap readers. They just had like swipe and it was like, we can work together. So we ended up doing an alliance where together and then they ended up acquiring the company. Do you remember the moment of acquisition? Like you hearing that that's going to happen? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and it was terrifying and I wanted to play like really cool. And then when this guy left, I ran and I, rang my wife and I told her like I think we're probably going to sell this and it was like in the movie it was it was like you know like in the movies where this guy was there we spoke with five minutes and then he stood up and he said like my name my M&A guy will close things down and he just left and we ended up speaking with the M&A guy and we we closed the transaction were you happy with what it was acquired for I was happy I was not happy that I had to work for them now uh, was part of you know my golden parachute and my golden shackles were in there, but it's definitely the reason that I'm in San Francisco right now, because I saw the deal, and I saw what Square was doing here and what Stripe was doing this, and they had like seven zeros more to the right on valuation and volumes and all those things. So it was like you know I want to move to to Silicon Valley. What did you come up with? So come here, starting to kind of outline what I wanted to do. And uh, I see this post that it was written by Elizabeth Warren and the senator from Massachusetts in the Huffington Post, where she was stating that 20% of the America, of American population spend more money in interests and commissions than they do in food. And uh, she was, you know, in order to fix this, we need to turn the US post office into a bank. And uh, this is a time of the sharing economy when Uber was turning everybody into taxis and Airbnb was turning everybody into hotels. And uh, because of my previous work for Verifone, uh, we worked in a couple of solutions uh, of something that is called agent banking, which is basically, you know, enabling mom and pop stores to render the last mile of financial transactions. So you can send a transfer from a little store. And this is a way of, you know, getting the infrastructure closer to the people and trying to close the, the you know, the underserved or the unbanking gap. And uh, with the sharing economy was like, well, let's just turn everybody to a bank. And that was the inception of AirBank. AirBank was a, the company that I started here. We chose a very complicated and uh, interesting use case. So a lot of people in the United States don't have checking accounts. They don't have bank accounts. So they get, they get paid with a check. And what do you do with a check if you don't have a bank account? So there's the huge infrastructure, something that's called check cashing stores, where people go and they sell their checks for a discount. And it was like, well, what if AirBank starts tackling that use case first? Uh, so we developed these, I guess, pretty cool service 
where if you needed to cash a check, instead of going to a check cashing store, you take your smartphone and you take a picture of a check. And we would underwrite that the check is a good check somehow. And then we would match it with people nearby. And then they would run a reverse auction trying to win your business by bidding at a location, time, and price. So you would scan your check and you start getting bids. So it was this kind of a marketplace. And uh, I'm a very big believer of community and uh, kind of we engineered this as a social transaction. So it, it was just not a monetary transaction. It was a social transaction. So we started, you know, presenting these to venture capitalists and we got some of the greatest investors in Silicon Valley to back us on this thing. How much did you raise? We raised 2.5. And with that money in the bank, we wanted to start scaling the the business. In the world of entrepreneurs and founders, everybody tells you that you need to do something that is 10x better to the existing alternative to achieve product market fit. And uh, ours was 100% better, maybe 1000% better. And it was so good. It was so good that people didn't believe it was legit. And uh, we ended up discovering that if we use retail locations, we can breach this trust gap. So we started acquiring some check cashing stores, right? I mean, once we had a retail location, uh, the trust gap was kind of being closed and people started using our startup more. And uh, after doing it for two years, I was exhausted. And uh, we decided to shut down the company. And that was really hard. How did you decide to do that? My board was really supportive when we were in this process. We're acknowledging that this was no longer a venture backable business. Right? We needed stores and infrastructure, and you know, I was like, now this was going to be another, a very different type of company. And we started having some initial conversations with private equity funds, and we had a huge discrepancy because when you, when you're an inventor, you you really want to make a lot of money, but you really want to change the world, right? When you're in private equity, you just want to make a lot of money. So my idea was to use my efficiencies to reduce pricing. And it was like, okay, we have all these things. So instead of actually, you know, selling to our services for X, we can do it for Y. The idea of the investors that I was speaking with was like, no, 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 let's just use your efficiencies to increase margins. And, and at some point I was like, you know, between the exhaustion and, and all those things. And I, I, I really, you know, looked myself in the mirror and it was like, do you really want to be the guy who's going to be abusing the underbank population in the United States for the next 15 years. And do you really want to create a more efficient rip-off machine where you can extract more money out of people who don't have a lot of money to pay? I think after that, that was a simple decision. And it was like, no, I don't want to do that. So with all the feelings and, and emotions of a moment like this, I, we had a board meeting and we said, like, I think we should, we should stop doing what we're doing. Emotionally, how did that feel? It was, it was really complicated. I mean, I really struggled emotionally and mentally for a few months on, on this. It was like, I had it, everything. I had the best investors in the world backing me. Right? I had, and I effed it up. Did you feel like you had the ability to start something after that? Or it's just like, I need a break? No, 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 no. I was uh, a couple of months without leaving the house and... No, in bed and, and with a horrible depression. 
I was like, no, I was like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting story as well, uh, because after two months, I decided to leave my house. And uh, I had a kind of a group of entrepreneurs that we used to get together. And so there was one of when it was a meeting and I decided to attend. And uh, I go and I meet this friend and she saw me and she gave me a really big hug. And, and she said, congratulations. And I came home and I emailed her and I said, why did you say congratulations, right? For the last two months, Everybody's just been telling me, I'm sorry. Why did you say congratulations? And she sent me a, the most beautiful email somebody sent me. Congratulations for taking the risk. Congratulations for doing it. Congratulations for making this happen. Congratulations for all the people, all the life that you changed. Congratulations for convincing everybody that you what you created should have been done. And uh, that was like my... Okay, I get out of that moment and start living again. So for six, seven years, I worked for a company called Aslo, which was a digital bank for digital small businesses. I worked for Brex. I worked for Tribal Credit. It was a really good time to recover emotionally. So what was it like going to San Francisco and trying to, like, to get all of the paperwork and stuff in order? So we, we moved in 2012 and the move was okay. It was, you know, Mexico and the U.S. have particular visas that you can apply through the NAFTA agreements. And uh, so our first approach into into U.S. was okay. When I started Airbank, I needed to change status and I could not use the visa anymore. So I applied for an H-1B visa. The H-1B visa is, is, is actually a lottery. So you, you apply and there's a number of visas that they can give a year. And if you win the lottery, you get to apply. If you don't get the, if you're done with the lottery, you don't get to apply. So I won the lottery and I got my, I, I got my H-1B visa and when I decided to shut down Airbank and, and move to Oslo. I transferred my H-1B visa to the new company. And this is exactly when the Trump administration started. So I was in my new job, really happy. You know, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. It's not my problem. It's a CEO problem. I just need to do my job and it's fine. And I'm in this meeting and uh, the HR person comes and she was pale as your sweatshirt. And, and he was like, can you come out for a second? And I was like, no, 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 I'm busy, I'm busy. And he was like, no, no, can you come out for a second? So she opens and was like, Leo, can you come out? And he was like, I'm in a meeting right now, can this wait? And he was like, mm-mm. So, so I come out and she tells me there are two agents from Homeland Security to see you. So there I go. I see the two agents. They, they were like dressed as civilians. So they were, they're not police officers. Uh, and uh, they said, we want to talk with you. So it was like, do I need a lawyer? And he was like, no, 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 you don't need a lawyer. No, it's, it's fine. Uh, and uh, it was like, can the person from HR be with me? And he's like, no, 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 it's just, just us. Uh, so they put me in a room. And for three hours, they just questioned me about everything. 
about how do you come here? Why did you get this job? And I, I mean, I don't know if I was being paranoid. I have no idea to know anything about that, but it was just like, they, I just felt that they were just like trying to make me fall on contradictions, right? So it was like, so how do you get this job? It's like, yeah, you know, I do this and all my past and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, I know this person who is the chairman of, 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 these, uh, of this bank. And it's like, oh, so your friend gave you the job. And he was like, no, 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 no. My friend didn't give me any job. My friend pointed me down and applied for this job. So after three hours, I leave. They, they go and say, we'll, we'll get back to you. What's running through your head as you're panicking and calling the lawyers? It's like, uh, well, I'm going to get deported, right? I mean, for the first thing that happens, is like, I'm just going to get deported. I don't know what I did. I don't know what triggered this, but, uh, but I'm just going to get deported out of all those things. So the lawyer said like, okay, don't worry. We don't know exactly what happens, but okay, it's fine. We got this. Just like, if you have any expectations of leaving the country in the next six months, cancel all your plans. You're grounded. You cannot leave the U.S. because if you leave the U.S., you might not be able to go back. So we canceled our plans for whatever plans we had. And eventually, after six months and a lot of, you know, requests for evidences that they were sent to the bank, they, they ended up saying, oh, sorry, it's fine. So that night, I called the CEO of the company. was like, dude, I need to start the green card process tomorrow. Right. Yesterday, actually, this, uh, this is not going to happen to me ever again. So she was like, hundred percent support you. We'll start the green card process for you. So the green card process, when you, when company sponsoring you, it's kind of complicated. It's like a process where you need to apply for something that's called a label certification. It takes a year. And, and so all that was happening. And I was just, you know, about to go into the process and suddenly one night, Right. I think we all got that alert in our cell phones that was like shelter in place, shelter in place, global pandemic. Okay. Well, fine. I mean, I mean, my immigration case was not in my mind when that was happening, but then I started speaking with lawyers and it's like, okay, how, how this is going. And it was, uh, well, you know, we're stuck. We're stopped. It's like, why, why are we stopped? It's, it's like, you know, because we're the process we, or we are right now, we need to publish in the office that we're going for a green card and we need to put like a letter like well great it's like but there are no offices right so there's not an office where we can actually put the letter into everything's closed right so it was like don't post it right just skip it and it was like well we cannot skip it because if we skip it it's gonna get denied at some point so i mean the world is learning to live with a pandemic i'm learning to live with a pandemic um, and my immigration lawyers were trying to figure things out and at some point they did, and they said like, you know, well, instead of actually posted, there's like some jurisprudence from somebody that you can send an email to everybody who's been in the office for the last three months with a letter attached saying, so they ended up, I mean, the world kept moving and they, they were able to, to, to get there. And uh, in uh, January, I think 2021, we're all coming back from vacations and, you know, we get this kind of all hands meeting and our CEO tells us, it's like, hey, you know, the bank that is sponsoring our business decided to leave the US. It's selling its assets to somebody else. And as a byproduct of all that, the company's shutting down. So the company that was sponsoring you to stay in the US has now disappeared. Exactly. I mean, it was just not like poof, but it's like you have three months because, you know, processes, California and all those things. 
And uh, so my H1B is at the end of, it, of, of, of the rope because it's, it's almost done. My son is 20 years old. And when he turns 21, he's, he ages out from the green card process. So unless we do something before he turns 21, he needs to leave the country. Right, because he's not, he's not a citizen because he was born in Mexico. So I was like, okay, panic attack, right? Uh, like, what do we do? So scramble the world, crazy, ended up speaking with a bunch of different lawyers and paying a bunch of money for this thing. And the only thing I could have done, it was like, I didn't have any time to go through the process of another sponsorship petition because I would take years. My lawyer tells me, you need to self-sponsor yourself and you need to apply for the, one of those extraordinary ability visas that if you do, you can file immediately uh, while the process is actually, you know, being resolved, but you can stop the clock for your son and you can stop the clock for yourself and, and do that. So we did that. My son was turning 21, I think on September 17, we filed on September 9. Right. So, so it was just like, yeah, down to like, the wire. Yeah, exactly. Live, live in overdrive. Because the 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 risk of you not being able to do all this time is your life that you've built in America is upended. Like you would all have to leave. Your whole life suddenly just hangs by a wire. So eventually we applied and all that got resolved. It took us two and a half years to actually get our green cards that we ended up getting them on. July 31st, 2023 at 4.25 p.m. 4.25. So like right before the 5 p.m. close. Yeah, I saw, I, I remember the email when I said like, you've been approved. And it was like, oh my God, this is, this is, this is it. And you know, I, I've been doing what I call immigration engineering for the last 10 years, right? Which is like, you know, change to the visa, to that visa, go out, go here, go well, blah, blah. So when, when all this was happening, I was the head of product of the company that I just left. And it was like, okay, you know, the economy is not doing great and it's not the best time to, for, for fintech companies. I was like, I want to start a new company and it has to be around immigration, right? Because I mean, this has been in my head for the last 12 years. So started looking and uh, I was like, there has to be a product that can help you move to another country, right? There has to be a product. There's an app for everything, right? Uh, so started looking, started looking, started looking, and I couldn't find anything. So got together with some friends and uh, let's just, you know, create a web page of a potential product that, you know, could help you move to another country. And we just put a big claim there. So like, we help you move to anywhere in the world. And we just put our web page. And uh, oof, suddenly the world just, you know, came at us and it was like, seriously, right? I mean, people really want this so bad. So we started thinking about this. And for the last, you know, four months, I've spent my time speaking with other migrants. I'm, I'll make a pause here because I think this is really interesting. Every time that I used to call the United States Customer Immigration Services and ask them for a status update on my case, they would say, what is your alien registration number, sir? And I always used to answer, I'm not an alien, I'm a human. So when, when we started with this company, it was like the name has to be not alien. And uh, we found that the domain was available for, for $12. So at least some help from up there, right? It was like, yeah, this is it. 
And I've spent the last four months of my life speaking with fellow Norelians from all around the world, really trying to understand what everybody wants to do and what everybody's looking for. And this is the inception of what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So can you describe, like, in a couple sentences, what is the Not Alien app? Sure. I'm going to start by debunking some myths. So the first one, and it's really sad for me to say this, because I've spent the last 12 years trying to get into this country, right? But myth number one, the United States is no longer the most desirable destination to move in the world. I think that's myth number one. Myth number two is... People don't know where they want to go. Everybody believes that people have like a really clear idea of where they want to go. People don't. Right? People are really open to other opportunities. And I think the, the pandemic is part of the culprit of that, where now you know, we all learn that we can do things remotely. So when I started speaking with my, my fellow Norelians and I asked them, what's the job to be done? What are you looking to do? And what, how can I help you? Everybody was like, I, I know that I want to move. I just don't know where I can move. And it's like, I'm spending hours on Reddit and in Google and now in ChatGPT and, and all the government websites in the world trying to figure this out. And I can't. And government websites are not built for you to easily figure things out. Like government websites are some of the worst built websites that you know of. hundred percent. And uh, it feels like you're reading the description of how to assemble a nuclear reactor, right? It's really complicated. So, so we said, what if we get all the immigration programs from all the world and we put them into a service that within taking a questionnaire, you can discover where you're eligible to move. So that's what Not Alien App does right now. We started testing it in beta a couple of weeks ago. And we're getting like incredibly encouraging results. Thank you so much. It's been, it's, it's, we've been working at this really hard for the last four months. So you discover where you can move. So we tell people, hey, you can move to Portugal. And it's like, okay, great. Now what? So the second thing that people told us that they needed or they wanted was immigration. It's such a complex, it's such a complex thing that it requires a strategy, right? So it's like, well, what if we craft a strategy for people? And so we, we start asking people, just tell us about yourself. Tell us about your life. Tell us about your goals. Why do you want to move? What, what, is, what is important to you? So based on all that, we and, and, and the eligibility data that we collect before, we're crafting immigration strategies. And we give people, hey, here's, you know, here's a roadmap of if you're going to move to Spain, if you want to move to Portugal, if you want to move to Germany, if you want to move to Mexico, if you want to move to... Uh, now, another interesting data point for you, uh, 21% of our customers are currently in the U.S. and they want to leave the U.S., which is, which is kind of interesting. And uh, so we give our immigration strategy to users and now they say, now what? I, what do you want, right? It's like, well, can you help me navigate this immigration strategy? So what we're working right now that we hope with that we can release in, in a few months is this whole concept of you discover your eligibility, we give you our immigration strategy, and then we give you this kind of project management tool that helps you navigate the whole immigration strategy. And we do mostly all the things you need to do. When you're moving to a new country, you need to get your passports, your marriage certificates, your birth certificates, translate them into other languages, certify them, notarize them. It's, it's just like a huge endeavor, right? So we, we, we're hoping to be able to facilitate all that for you. So it's going to be basically like a one-stop shop for everything you need 
to go to another country and live there. Exactly. And the last process is once you've done all that, right? We just need to file. So we have the vision of becoming the largest immigration company in the world where we will be able to facilitate the process from every single country in the world for every single nationality in the world. That's such an exciting vision. It seems like you're well on your way to achieving that. And I guess like looking back at your 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 whole life and looking at the lessons that you've learned along the way, what piece of advice do you think you would give to entrepreneurs, creatives trying to start something of their own? Maybe they're just in the ideation process. Maybe they're in the beginnings of that of that creation. The biggest advice that I've gotten from one of my mentors is to uh, learn to detach myself from my companies. I, I used to participate in this kind of startup school and kind of we always used to start those meetings by saying something like, the product is not me. The product is not the composition of my soul. The product is not going to be, it's not what's going to be written in my tombstone when I die. The product does not define me. It's a stupid product. It's a stupid idea. It's just that. Because it's it's hard, right? Because normally entrepreneurs are really passion-driven people. And it feels like when the product suffers, you suffer. And when the product dies, a part of you die. And uh, learning to say, no, 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 no. This is just a product. This is just a test. I think it's one of the best things that I would encourage everybody. Because then you can really be objective, right? I think the other, other thing that I, it's worked really well for me is I normally approach now everything that I do, assuming that I'm wrong. And I want to see, I want to see the data that proves me that I'm actually right. All the time in the past I wanted to do, I was doing the opposite. I was sure my idea was the best idea in the world. And I wanted to run and do something and I wanted to show, have some data to back that assumption. And ch just changing the approach, assuming that you, what were you testing, it's, it's not the best idea in the world, it's, it's gonna fail, right? It, it changes the perspective and actually when you find something, right, you, you see the data that can actually dispute that. And I think, you know, the third one is, you know, one, one of the cliches, Silicon Valley is full of cliches, but one of the cliches that we have here is that the path of a CEO is a really lonely one. Right, uh, because you're all by yourself, and you're you're forced to make certain decisions. And and I think my my advice to everybody is like make it less lonely, right? Speak about things, invite your friends, get in, you know, network yourself into these type of groups, right? Speak about your ideas, speak about what you're thinking, get as early as you can in front of customers, show them no, if your idea is. It's so simple that just by some by, by showing it to somebody, they're gonna steal it from you. It's a really bad idea, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, make it less lonely. Surround yourself with good people and with people who can actually give you some good advice. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Si Pan, Kenny Ray, 
Josie Yo, Matt Fernandez, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez, with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersma, and Yao Luo. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.